Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know about our major exhibition on view now is Silicon City Computer History Made in New York, which tells the story of the invention of computers in New York City. Please pick up a brochure if you don't already have one. I always like to ask how many members do we have with us this evening? Lots of members. Thank you, members. Your support is just helps us with all our programs, and we invite you, if you're not already a member, to join. You can pick up a brochure, whether you're a member or not. And um, thank you, Jim, for taking the brochure. Um, filled with information about all our upcoming programs for the spring and our current exhibitions. Tonight's program, The White House, A Family Affair, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs, and I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many wonderful authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to recognize and thank our trustee with us tonight, Cy Sternberg, and all our Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all the great work they do. Let's give them all a great round of applause. I'd also like to welcome tonight a group who are joining us from the Brookdale Community College this evening. Just let me put my glasses on before you raise your hands. Raise your hands, Brookdale people. Thank you for joining us. <clears throat> The program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session, and there'll be a formal book signing following the program. Uh, copies of our speakers' books are in our museum store on the 77th Street side. The book signing is on the Central West, Central Park West side. Um, you may wonder, you expected to see Leslie Stahl here tonight if you didn't receive our, our email message. She couldn't make it. She was just recently called for an assignment in Paris. So she, she just had to go. What can you do? But in her place, um, Gil Troy, who is on my your left, will be moderating tonight. And uh, it, it's, Gil comes to us through Leslie. She met him in a library many years ago, and that's how he came to our program. So perfect moderator, Leslie's library friend. We are delighted to welcome him in her place and also Betty Boyd Caroli next to Gail Troy, Jeffrey C. Ward, and David Nassau. Gil Troy is professor of history at McGill University. For fall 2015, Professor Troy served as a visiting scholar in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. He is a weekly columnist for the Daily Beast and the editor of the revised edition of the multi-volume classic, History of Presidential Elections, a very timely subject. Professor Troy is also the author of several books on political history, including Mr. and Mrs. President, From the Trumans to the Clintons, and his latest, The Age of Clinton, America in the 1990s. Author and historian Betty Boyd Caroli has written widely on the topic of presidential marriages and families. Her books include Lady Bird and Lyndon, The Hidden Story of a Marriage That Made a President, First Ladies Martha Washington to Michelle Obama, and The Roosevelt Women, 
She's held fellowships and grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt Institute, and the Hoover Presidential Library. Jeffrey C. Ward is the co-author of a critically acclaimed documentary series, The Civil War and The Roosevelts. He has won a total of seven Emmy Awards for his work with the PBS series, American Experience, as well as for his work on documentary, excuse me, films. He is the author of A First Class Temperament, The Emergence of Franklin Roosevelt, which won the 1989 National Book Critics Circle Award for Biography and the 1990 Francis Parkman Prize and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. We do hope you will join us on Saturday, May 7th, the day before Mother's Day, for a morning program. It will be 9.30 to 11. Jeffrey Ward will return with joined by Leslie Stahl, who will interview him for a fascinating program on grandmother power, the Roosevelts, uncovering largely unknown history of the Roosevelt matriarch, FDR's mother, Sarah Delano Roosevelt. Now, Leslie Stahl has a new book coming out on grandmother power. That's not the exact title, but that's really what it's about and um, the value of grandmothers. And we thought we'd focus on one pretty amazing grandmother. Um, Jeff is a, the expert and we have had him here. I don't know if any of you were here one Saturday morning on the Roosevelt's. Wonderful. So I invite you all to come and just know that all grandparents are welcome free of charge. <laughs> so if any of you are a grandparent, you need to register, put your name in, um, you know, go to our website or call us, but we hope you'll come. We want to pack the place for Leslie and Jeff, and her book will be on sale, a great Mother's Day gift. Um, David Nassau is the Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. Professor of History at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He is the author of the great book, The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times and a, a 2013 Pulitzer Prize finalist. His previous book, Andrew Carnegie, was also a Pulitzer Prize finalist and was the recipient of the New York Historical Society's 2006 American History Book Prize. Now it's time to turn off the cell phones and any electronic devices and please join me in welcoming our wonderful guest tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Dale. And uh, thank you all for coming tonight, despite the weather. Um, Dale, you've done such an amazing job in making the New York Historical Society a real center of intellectual conversation. And uh, it's a particular thrill to be here to fill Leslie's very considerable shoes. I don't quite have the hair to match, but we'll try to do our best. Uh, and for me, it's also particularly exciting because I've learned so much from each one of these historians. I've learned, I've quoted from them. They've made me look smart. They've made me look good. So I want to start by thanking you and uh, invite you all for this exciting conversation. So I'm going to start with having taught in Canada for 20 years, a Canadian's perspective on first families, and ask what I'll call the Sophie Gregoire question. Sophie Gregoire is the wife of Justin Trudeau. Nobody knows who she is. What's this obsession, this American obsession with first families, and where did it come from? Betty, you've taken us on a tour in your books from Martha to Michelle. Explain this for us. Well, and I have to say that's what got me interested in the subject of where it started, because I was living in Italy, 
we're talking 35 years ago, and I realized that the wife of the president could walk into any department store and be completely unnoticed. And so I thought, where did Americans get this idea that we have to know what the president had for breakfast and where his wife bought her clothes and, and secret service for all of them and so forth. And so I started this book on first ladies soon after that. And I realized very early on that it really dates back to George and Martha Washington. I mean, uh, for one thing, they had the family living with the office. You know, they, most countries don't have that, that the, the entire family lives, you know, within walking distance of the office. And in the case when Martha Washington came here to New York in the spring of 1789, she was living right, you know, it was one building where they did business and also entertained people. And immediately the local papers, you can go here to the 42nd Street Library, maybe here in the New York Historical Society as well, and read the newspapers from 1789, and they're all talking about Martha Washington. One man wrote, uh, kind of disgusted with it, he said, uh, if we don't stop this, pretty soon uh, we're going to have an, art an article that says, you know, Mrs. Washington uh, hurt the little finger on her left hand, and she now has been treated by a doctor, and pretty soon we expect her to be better. So they were very interested in Martha. What she served for dessert was the cream a little rancid and the trifle, you know. So it really dates back then. And I don't, I was with some people the other day who said we really need to get rid of this. You know, in Italy, they call it Americanizing an election. When you start talking about the family and uh, how many times they've been married and what, whether the kids use drugs, they, they call that Americanizing an election. But I don't think we're likely to get rid of it because it's so ingrained in how we look at our uh, political families. Listen to you, I'm thinking maybe we weren't so good at that American Revolution thing, that maybe we're still trying to replicate the royal family. <laughs> well, there may be a little of that, but I think there was also the idea that they're just like us and we have a right to know everything they're doing. I think it was, you know, she, it was not an attempt to be queen. This obsession with the first family, is it a blessing or a curse? When we think of the Roosevelts, did this enhance Franklin Roosevelt's leadership or was it a major distraction? Well, the Roosevelts, I think, are very unusual because both of them were public figures on a scale no other no other first lady has ever i mean i i bow to you on first ladies but i think i'm right about that she did she was the most important first lady and but and remember she, she had more time than all of them she did and she had two great catastrophes world war ii and the depression yeah. and she was a great lady yes but she also had uh, issues i mean she was the first one to really hurl herself into issues 24 hours a day. And uh, so I think there was a sort of, what was interesting about that household was that it had two, it had sort of two families in it. It had two circles. He had his people, she had hers. It was for 12 years, a sort of uh, a boarding house with people moving in and out. Lorena Hickok lived there, Harry Hopkins lived there, various Roosevelt children at various times lived there. And, P and the, the Roosevelt boys, I'm not quite answering your question, um, because I think there's both a strength and a, and a weakness. The, the, the doings of the Roosevelt children were not helpful to the, to the president and first lady. In what way? Fill, fill in well, the they were, they, I Give think, us some dirt. I think they were married 19 times among them over the course of their... And this is in the 30s right. and 40s, this is not, yeah. you know, 
today. Yeah. And, um, and they, you know, they were drunken driving and all sorts of stuff. And uh, uh, that was not helpful. <laughs> um, but uh, when they did live there, now there are two quite, uh, Anna lived there for a long time between marriages and then when she was married to her second husband with her two children who had the terrible misfortune of being, being nicknamed Buzzy and Sisty. And there were children's books about them. And, and, uh, and one of them, uh, Eleanor Seagraves, um, became a very shy, reticent person. The other one fled to England and, and built his life there simply because of this crazy attention that was paid to everything they did. Every time they appeared in the window, they were asked to wave to crowds when they were five and six. It's a very strange way to, way to live. The, the current president and his wife, it seems to me, have somehow managed to be absolutely normal people who happen to be living in that house, raising their children. There are no scandals about either one of them for all of these years, that's an extraordinary achievement. My, uh, but they're young, the children are younger, you know, that's a help, isn't it? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, if they were driving, sure, is the we older knew, one driving now probably is, but. But people spend a lot of attention, a lot of attention on Jimmy Carter's daughter. Oh yeah, you know, reading at the table. I yeah, mean, yeah, and uh, these people seem to have maintained a dignified family life in that house. That's a, I think that's an extraordinary achievement. So it's interesting, we, we tend to think it's just about the modern media. And you're both talking about things that predate our modern 24-7 cable news, and, and still the obsession is, is there. I'm curious also, Jeffrey, was there a tension between the blood relatives and the official family, the, 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 the political family, as it were, that you were referring to? Is it, is it I don't quite know we, what you mean. When we talked about the White House family, yeah. I immediately thought just simply relatives. Uh -huh. You started talking about Harry Hopkins and Lorraine Hancock, you're talking about people who aren't relations by blood. And what was the tension, what was the relationship between the Roosevelt kids and these uh, unofficial families? I think they had been raised with these people around them all the time. From, from, from when they were very small, their parents were partners, I think, rather than husband and wife in the traditional parental sense. And they were, they didn't like uh, Louis Howe when he moved into the house when FDR was stricken with polio in New York, but they got to like him. And it, they became part of the family. Missy Land, who was FDR's secretary, was, was a mem sort of a member of the family. Um, and various other people came and went, and uh, it was, it was an absolutely chaotic scene, that, that Roosevelt White House. Which might have led to the 19 divorces, but that's for the, well, that, that's for the group therapy session afterwards. That didn't happen there, but <laughs> right. yeah. David, tell us about the Kennedys. How did the first family play out? Blessing or curse? I think it, no, I think it was absolutely a uh, blessing for Jack Kennedy to have a gloriously astute, charming, glamorous, cultured wife who could take some of the, who could temper his own celebrity status, ground it in culture rather than in Hollywood. 
you know, the, the American first family has to do two things. In European nations, there's a head of state and there's a head of government. There's a royal family and then there's the, the prime minister. And that's been passed down in many nations. In Israel, there's a president and a prime minister and in several other places. And the president of the royal family is the ceremonial head of the nation who has to go to all these events. You look at you know, the events that Queen Elizabeth has done, or the president of, of Israel, uh, two or three a day, day after day after day after day. Well, in the United States, we are head of state and head of government resides in the same house. And we had to invent on the fly what the relationship would be between these two. And it devolved <clears throat> to the first lady. Um, where did that phrase come from? When was, she, was Martha called the first lady? No, no, never. Who was called the first? Well, the there's first, some debate on it, but it starts around the time of the Civil War. And it almost seems that it was first used for the wife of the president of the Confederacy. But anyway, it starts, uh, people talk about she is the first lady of our land. Or, and then eventually, I think Lucy Hayes is really the first one that it's widely used for. So we're talking the 1880s, right? Yeah, it, it becomes, you know, it, it becomes of critical importance. And, and for Kennedy, when, when you look at the Kennedy White House and when you look at the first ladies who preceded Jacqueline, Onassis, and when you look at the families, um, there wasn't a lot of glamour <laughs> in the, you know, go back, the Eisenhowers, the Trumans, the Roosevelts, the Hoovers, the Coolidges, the Hardings, you've got to go back to Teddy Roosevelt, maybe. Um, so there was an excitement, and in effect, the White House, and and Jackie reinvented, reinvented the White House, Washington, and the presidency as the cultural representation of what was great in this country. Um, so Jackie, and I think Jackie did it, not Jack, invited the Nobel Prize winners, um, Pablo Casals, uh, any number of writers and artists. When Malraux came, Malraux felt at home. And Jackie was, you know, at her apogee because she had entertained Malraux, the cultural minister of France, in a way that he was accustomed to. She brought French cuisine to the White House after the notoriously bad White House cooking. Especially during the Roosevelt. Right. Terrible. You know, the Roosevelts were the worst. The worst. Probably. Hands um, down. But, you know, I, I don't know that the Eisenhower and Truman White Houses were known for their uh, <laughs> showing off their, their cuisine. So there's pomp, there's circumstance, there's glamour. There is a redefinition of the presidency. And, and Jackie does it. And the irony is she hated the term first lady. She said it made her sound like a saddle horse. 
Betty, you want to respond? No, but I think we also have to give credit to the press secretaries who were very good in the Kennedy years. It was, I mean, uh, Pierre Salinger, I remember, told me that when Jackie would be off on one of her long trips, Jack Kennedy would call in Pierre Salinger and say, maybe now it's time to release that picture of John John under the desk yeah. or some other. So it was a very cleverly managed uh, PR job. And there was music in the White House before Jackie. I mean, Helen Taft did it, you know, and there was music there. But it got publicized better. Jackie's the first first lady to have her own press secretary. But she didn't do that much. It was really Pierre Salinger who, who managed well, it. Letitia Baldridge, right? Well, Letitia Baldridge was her social secretary. Right. They had very good advisors, I think, telling, you know, helping them work out what their image would be. And it was very successful. I mean, there were magazines around the world named for Jackie Kennedy. Well, yeah. I mean, and, and records. And, you know, and, and a lot of it has to, a lot of it has to do with Jack's upbringing. I mean, Jack was groomed for public service by his father from very early on. I mean, he knew how to talk to a camera from the time he was, you know, nine and ten, there were newsreel cameras then. Uh, he know, knew how to pose before a camera, and he grew up as Harvard celebrity, Boston celebrity, Hollywood celebrity, you know, and realized quickly, quickly, that this was an advantage that nobody else. Certainly not Richard Nixon um, was going to bring to the campaign trail, um, and Jackie allowed, as I said earlier, allowed him to ground that celebrity in a with a cultural foundation, so that it didn't look as crass as it would have without her. So so far we've been looking at the external, kind of the imagery. Let's drill down a little bit on on the personal dynamics. I'm thinking, for example, of the moment after Harry Truman retires, when he comes home from the library uh, to his house in Independence, Missouri, and the fire's going, and Bess is throwing the letters um, that she wrote to him into the fire. And Harry goes, Bess, what about history? She says, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. And she, she felt that Harry had become president. Harry had joined history. She didn't burn the letters that he wrote, but she felt that her communication was private. She wasn't happy with this um, White House thing. She wasn't happy sharing her life with the public. And she often wasn't a supportive spouse. On the other hand, someone like Nancy Reagan or Hillary Rodham Clinton, who ran as co-president then got knocked on the nose saying that's not acceptable, they wanted to be more partners. Uh, and sometimes Nancy Reagan would turn during the Iran-Contra affair, she turned to um, key members of, of Reagan's entourage and outsiders even to say, you got to shake him up, you got to speak to him. And, and he was not responsive. So let's talk a little bit, maybe you with the Johnsons will start. Um, What's the, how, how can the first lady or how can any other member of the official family help the president in a more personal way? Not just in terms of public, but in terms of that, that difficult, it's a lonely job, it's a difficult job. We saw how gray Barack Obama has gotten over the uh, eight years, yeah. not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, how, how does that Thank play you. Well, in doing the book on Lady Bird and Lyndon Johnson, I was able to read her unpublished diary, which uh, everybody knows about the big book she did, which was 800 pages, but her unpublished diaries about eight times that much. And she talks a lot in, it's just now, the last batch was just opened in the last year because there were some legal issues and so forth. And she talks a lot about um, being a support. I mean, uh, how often Lyndon would wake her up at four o'clock in the morning to talk about uh, 
for example, when the Republicans nominated uh, Barry Goldwater in 64, the Johnsons were talking about that at 5 o'clock in the morning. So her diary is full of examples of, of being really a, a big help to him. And then, of course, if you look at the social calendar, I mean, we talked a lot about the Civil Rights Act being passed in 1964 as we passed the uh, anniversary uh, last year. But you realize that she was having people to the White House in batches of a dozen or so, three nights a week. I mean, that way of helping him get that, him get enough legislators on his side to get that passed. So her diary is full of examples. And in fact, I concluded that he would have been a very different president without her. He would have had much less success. But they also had tough moments in their relationship, wasn't there? Oh, sure. Did he have a tendency to humiliate her too? Give us a little bit of that. Oh side well, of it. everybody has heard, I think, examples of how awful he could be. Like, go, you know, you've got uh, your stocking. You've got to uh, run in your stocking. Actually, uh, I think it was Bob Carroll who wrote that how appalled he was that somebody told him that when they were courting. Lyndon took uh, Lady Bird down to meet some of his friends, his family, and his boss. And right in front of other people, he said, Bird, uh, you've got to run in your stocking. Go changed." And she got up and, and did it. Well, that's one side of the story. But one woman I interviewed said that she was at the ranch one day, and it was Sunday morning, and they were going out to church, and late, they were a little late. And Lady Bird came down, and Lyndon said, Bird, you've got to run in your stocking. And she said, too late now, Lyndon, and she kept walking. <laughs> so there are two sides to that story. Certainly he did, he was abusive. He was abusive to everybody at times. But people I interviewed said that he could also be the most loyal, supportive person you know. So uh, I know people who read my book say, I wouldn't put up with that guy for <laughs> um, two minutes. But she never regretted it as far as I know. She uh, lived, you know, another 34 years after he died and uh, certainly never gave any indication she would have had it any other way, so. Jeff, you said that the Roosevelt marriage wasn't a warm and cuddly affair. So if, if he didn't get that kind of support from Eleanor, where did he get it? Or, well, he got a lot she, of, no, she, no, he, she was a great supporter of, of his programs, uh, and, but she was also his goad and his conscience. And uh, that was very helpful and got a lot done. And it was also, um, especially as the years went by, um, produced terrible strain. I mean, he, she could not relax. She never could. She didn't relax till the day she died. And, uh, you know, she, she piled on his bedside table things every night that he was, she insisted he read, and then she would grill him about them. Did you, did you read the fourth letter and the fifth report and so on. And he did his best to um, uh, do as much of what she wanted as, as he thought was realistic. Um, but she, and she was, uh, she was simply tireless. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what else. I, I may have told this story here before, so forgive me if I did. But when I was writing about her, I got, um, I became convinced that she suffered from the same thing that Theodore Roosevelt suffered from, which was uh, periodic bouts of terrible depression. And, and in both of them, it produced, um, in order to get through it, they were just frenetically active every minute. When Theodore Roosevelt read, he used to sit in a rocking chair on the porch at Sagamore Hill, and he would rock and read. He, had, he couldn't think of anything else to do, so he'd read one of the three books he read every day. And his wife would sit here, and she would watch until the, 
the rocking chair got close enough to the edge of the porch when it looked dangerous, then she'd say, Theodore, come back, and he'd pull it back. Um, and Eleanor Roosevelt. Where was Ritalin when you needed it? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, exactly. When, um, uh, when I was nine years old, uh, for reasons I cannot tell you now, I had read some stuff about Franklin Roosevelt, and I, I became troubled by why he'd run for a third term. Why a nine-year-old had that thought, I do not know. <laughs> and I thought, so my, I think my mother must have said, why don't you write Mrs. Roosevelt? So I did. I wrote, uh, you know, a letter asking about it to Eleanor Roosevelt, New York, New York. It was delivered. And 10 days later, I had a handwritten answer from her. And it, later, when I was reading about it, and I, you know, I, I then thought, of course, you could, any, anytime you want to write a politician or their wife, <laughs> you just write them and they write you right back. But um, what I realized was, from talking to other people who knew her, Edna Gravich, who lived with her during her last years, she was up at three in the morning until she died answering her, her mail like that. And my letter was just another one of the hundreds that she had done that week. And that's because she couldn't sleep. And that's because she was almost suicidal if she had nothing to do. Give you a sense of scale. By the time Ronald Reagan was in the White House, there were so many bags of mail coming in that he would take 10 a day to answer because he wanted to have some sense of what the people were asking, but he couldn't manage I think Obama speech. does that too. I think I they bring him Jen at the end of the day. Because it's important to have that, that, yeah. that back and forth. Yeah. I want to ask you about the Jack and his father, Joe. Um, how did Joe's presence and absence help Jack Kennedy once he was in the White House? Well, as soon as, as soon as, Jack was elected, um, Joe went on vacation. Um, and Joe never visited the White House while he was healthy, which lasted only a year before he had a huge stroke. Jackie had to convince him to come see the kid's playhouse at some point. And, and he snuck in and then snuck out. There were many reasons for this. Obviously, he was a, didn't have the best of reputations. And to put it <laughs> very mildly, but we've also got to remember that Jack Kennedy looked really young. And Jack Kennedy was really young. So the inclination to say this young man has to listen to daddy, you know, was even stronger. Uh, Joe knew this, Jack knew this, and they made a pact that they were not going to be seen together. They spent a lot of time in Hyannis, they spent a lot of time in Palm Beach, but not at the White House until the stroke. And when the stroke came, you saw the extraordinary strength of this film, of this, of this family. Um, all the children flew down to the hospital and stayed there until Joe got out. And there were some extraordinary photographs. And they would call him on a regular basis, including the president, to the point where Rose gave them a schedule, said, you can call this day, you can call this day, and only call it at such and such a time. And they finally invited Joe 
hoping that it would help in his rehabilitation to the White House. Um, Jack's, one of Jack's closest friends was Ben Bradley. Um, and it was a bad choice because Ben Bradley wrote about everything, just about everything that went on. And he described in his remarkable book, Conversations with, with Kennedy, the scene in which Joe Kennedy visited the White House. Um, they wheeled Joe into the dining room, and Joe refused. He was going to walk. And he toddled into the dining room and sat down. And for the rest of the meal, they made believe that everything was OK. They would say, what do you think about that, Dad? And isn't that amazing, Dad? And every once in a while, he would spout some sort of gibberish. And they would make believe it was, it made sense. And Jackie sat next to him. And he drooled from the stroke and would wipe his, his cheek um, to make sure that, you know, and, and do it in such a way that he, that he wouldn't be embarrassed. This was in sharp contrast to a little bit before then, when soon after Jack was elected, he visited um, Joe at a house that Joe rented in Washington. And something happened. I don't know what. His kid, Carolyn, was with him. And he said to the phone rang, and somebody said, Mr. President, you have to take this. And he dropped Carolyn down, and she started crying. And when he came back, Joe said, don't do that. You know, never leave a crying child, no matter what the responsibility is. He was the father. And when they were in Hyannisport, and they had, they played touch football, and Joe said, it's time, you know, to have dinner, or it's time to have lunch. Um, and Joe, and Jack was a little bit late in getting into the house. Joe would scold him, come on in now. <laughs> and at one point, he turned to his sister, Jean, and he says, does he know I'm president? <laughs> so the, the relationship, it, it's an extraordinary relationship. And what I found very interesting was even during that year that Joe could talk to Jack and Jack could talk to Joe understood, like few of us parents do, that our children have grown up and that they know more than we do. And in, through large parts of the campaign and through that first year of the presidency, um, Joe kept out. He made one request. Jack was convinced that Joe was going to tell him who he wanted to be Secretary of the Treasury. He said, no. One request, and that is that Bobby be named Attorney General. Mm -hmm. And Bobby didn't want it, and Rose didn't want it, and Jack didn't want it. But Joe said, you've got to do it. You've got to have someone at the cabinet who cares about you as well as the office. Um, and he was strong enough that they, they sent Clark Clifford to try to talk him out of it. And Clifford just threw up yeah. his hand and said, forget <laughs> it. You know, he's stronger than I am. It wasn't a bad choice. No, <laughs> it wasn't. And it was a terrific choice. 
Because after the Bay of Pigs, Jack needed somebody that he could right. talk to. He needed an advisor. And, and Bobby was that man. Can I, can I pay tribute to your book? Please. Well, perhaps you don't <laughs> no, want me to. No. Uh, the Kennedys have been written about badly more than I think almost anybody ever. And uh, people love the salacious stuff. Uh, and that book does not make Joe Kennedy a particularly attractive person, but it does not lay all kinds of sins on him that he didn't commit. It's a really good book. I urge anybody to read it. It's wonderful. Thank you. And there'll be opportunities to buy it and get it signed. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Step this way. <laughs> That's right. And you will get a commission. <laughs> so, David, if I could just follow up something. You know, I, I've noticed there's a presidential campaign going on. Um, and in, in the same way that Joe absented himself from the John Kennedy White House in order to not upstage John Kennedy, would you suggest that in the event of a Hillary Clinton victory that Bill Clinton absent himself from Boy, the White I, House? What, was, or what would be your he's advice? a rough act. I would not want to. I, I would not want to be in her shoes as as they move forward. I would hope that Bill, and I think the plan probably is that he's going to spend time flying all over the place. But that's a mis that's a problem too because if he flies all over the place as head of his foundation, that's going to create problems. Um, if he remains in Washington, that's going to remain problems. Uh, there's never been a first husband. There's never been a first man. And I don't know how, I, I don't know how they're going to negotiate that. I really don't. Uh, Jeff, are there any words of wisdom from the Roosevelt experience that could help no. either the Clintons or the, Clintons the Rubios, especially. the Trumps, the Cruises, anybody who you want to uh, <laughs> uh, speculate no. becoming president? Well, I, I saw the interview with Mrs. Trump this morning. We were talking about it earlier. Um, that will be a very, that, that would be an amazing, it'll be amazing on many levels. <laughs> I, I, I no, the Clinton thing fascinates me. I mean, I, you know, I, we're not being partisan, are we? But, um, never historians, never. No, uh, we have no idea what's happening. But, um, uh, how they are going to negotiate that, he is, he is, uh, he takes the spotlight when he's in a room. And, sorry? No, I mean, when you, when you, when you look at, when, when he's in the room, you look at him. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Well, sometimes you look at her, right? Okay. Is that what you meant? Well, there's oh. different interpretations, but... Uh... <laughs> he, he, he's a very charismatic fellow. That's right. all I'm trying to say. And uh, it is uh, how he fades into the background, becomes part of the furniture, was Franklin ever jealous of Eleanor? Jealous? No, in terms I don't of feeling so. upstage, was there that, that dynamic? No, I don't think so. I, you know, when he when he got sick, he really had to rely on her in part to keep his political career alive, and she really did. The cliche used to be that she was his, his eyes and ears, but she really was his eyes and ears. He was, she was many other things we now know. Um, uh, and no, I think he was always. He was always happiest when she was happiest, and she was happy doing things. Uh, he did not want her to stay at home. I, I've often, uh, my friend Doris Goodwin, who's someone I admire very much, is a friend of mine, has a theory in her very good book about the war years that there was a point at which Miss Roosevelt actually wanted her to come home 
and be at his side. I think, I think this is a romantic idea that Doris came up with. I don't think there's any evidence for it at all. <laughs> I think he, he, he wanted her to be happy and she was happy when she was doing things. And so they got along best when they were both at work. Um, and I know I don't think, she, I think he was sometimes irritated by, well, he was often irritated by her, but, uh, but not jealous. Uh, sometimes he wished she would not be so forthright and speak to subjects he had not yet decided what he was going to do about. Um, and sometimes he was just baffled by her. Um, during uh, my favorite story of that kind is that in, during Japanese internment, she initially went along with that as, a, as something. She, she wrote a letter and said it had to be done. She wrote to a friend, horrible as it is. She then learned much earlier than he did that it was a terrible mistake and an injustice. And she went out and went to the camps and so on. And then she announced she was going to bring, she thought it would be helpful if she brought a large Japanese American family to the White House to live in the White House as a symbol of uh, <laughs> unity. The Secret Service thought, took a very dim view of this. <laughs> Not a good idea. Now, whether, the, whether Roosevelt called the Secret Service and said, please take a dim view of this, we don't know. <laughs> Betty, you to no, I was in? just going to say that it seems to me the job of First Lady is, is pretty much institutionalized now. And this book I, I wrote in the 80s that's been updated each, with each new First Lady, and the last one was Martha Washington to M Michelle Obama. Some people are asking me what I'm going to do if Hillary becomes mm. president. And it seems to me that that will be the end of that series. <laughs> I don't really see putting Bill Clinton in there. But the work that the First Lady does can very easily be done by a man. It'll just sure. it'll be the title. Because remember, that East Wing is a huge operation. And I don't mean that he's going to choose the china or the menus, or, but he's going to, somebody's going to supervise the staff that does that. And in terms of helping her be elected, and in terms of seeing to the legacy afterwards, you know, the family really is in there before, during, and after. And I think he can do the job of the East heading the East Wing as well as anybody. The problem will c come with the money thing. Uh, I mean, if he's, I don't really see that he can keep giving speeches for high fees and collecting right. money for the foundation. I think that's going to be the, that's the part he's going to have to stop. But they're yeah. poor. <laughs> right. Yeah. We heard that. Well, they'll have to take a few years off from that. So there's this fascinating dynamic in, in so many of these relationships and the, and the Clintons are, are truly enmeshed. Um, my, my favorite Clinton joke is from 1993, when uh, you know, it was quite surprising that this young Arkansas governor had been elected, and um, they're a little bit uncomfortable in the White House. And the first time they go out on a motorcade, Bill and Hillary's motorcade runs out of gas. <laughs> and they drive up to a gas station. Lo and behold, the guy who's pumping gas is Hillary's old boyfriend. And Hillary looks at Bill and, and, and says, you know, Bill, um, if you hadn't, if I hadn't married him, he would be, sorry, I'm losing this joke. Uh, Bill, Hillary looks at Bill and says, I'm sorry, Bill looks at Hillary and says, Hillary, if you hadn't married me, you'd be Mrs. Gas Station Attendant. And Hillary looks at Bill and says, if you hadn't married me, he'd be Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's the dance. That's the back and forth. Um, I really appreciate these insights. This is a now an opportunity for all of us 
who have questions to go to the two microphones. Questions are not comments. Questions are not speeches. Questions are short, pointed. They usually end with that Canadian A. And um, questions are going to come one at a time. Uh, please say your name and ask your question. I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. My question is for Ms. Caroli. Um, we talked about the importance of a, a first lady. Can you talk about the absence of a first lady when Mrs. Wilson died and, and Woodrow Wilson became so distraught that he almost committed suicide or wanted to commit suicide? Well, it didn't last very long. No, it didn't. But. She died in August and he was married by the following. No, it was he was certainly with the second Mrs. Wilson uh, by the spring of April, in other words, like nine months later. And then they held off getting married until December of 15. So what is that? They were married a year and five months after she died. What was the question, though? Well, I mean, with her being gone, that, that seven to ten month period when he was alone, I mean, he was, yes, it was extremely very... distraught without having Yes, that is true. And the, but the, the second Mrs. Wilson stepped in in a very dramatic, even aggressive way. Uh, first of all, it seems like the courtship itself was a little managed um, by a Wilson cousin and by uh, Wilson's doctor because they saw how brift uh, Wilson was and they bonded so quickly. And this is, of course, in the early uh, teens that the Washington gossips said that when Woodrow Wilson finally proposed, uh, the next Mrs. Wilson was so surprised she fell out of bed. Yeah. Um, uh, but then, of course... I wasn't going to tell that. I but then, of course, it got um, much more complicated when Wilson had his series of strokes. And then she stepped in, and in many ways, she became the first Mrs. President. Uh, and, she, and she had a fourth-grade education. Was that is that accurate? She ha she was ed she was a Virginia girl who was educated mostly at home. Yes, her her. If you read her letters, I mean, you can see that there's very little schooling there. You're talking about the second. Enid, yeah. yeah. Enid Thank you. Wilson. That that story you told. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt tried very hard to be close to Woodrow Wilson. And somebody was known to have told that story <clears throat> at Roosevelt's dinner table, and Wilson learned of it and refused to speak to him again. Isn't that amazing? Wow. <laughs> he was minting. And it's amazing because and now Mrs. He... Wilson never liked Franklin, Franklin, probably for that reason. And now nobody ever gossips in Washington. Or no, that, so it's really that was the last time that the ever last happened. Last time it ever happened. Right. Uh, we have a question over here. Hi. Thank you all for a great talk. Um, this question is especially for Mr. Ward. Um, what was the uh, moral? Uh, what were the roles of Lucy Mercer and Lorena Hickok in terms of the moral standard of the FDR presidency? Very good question. You heard it. I couldn't quite hear it. I'm sorry. I heard Lucy Mercer. I couldn't hear anything else. What were the roles of Lucy Mercer and Lorena Hickok in terms of the moral standard of the FDR presidency? The moral standard of the of the Roosevelt presidency. Well, two. In my view, there were two very different. Okay. Separated questions. Um, uh, Roosevelt seems to have had an affair with his wife's social secretary, Lucy Mercer, Lucy Rutherford, Rutherford then, uh, during the First World War. Um, uh, and his marriage almost collapsed over it, and his wife never forgave him for it. Um, and you can make your moral judgment if you like about that. Um, I, uh, Mrs. Roosevelt had a very close friendship with Lorena Hickok, um, who was clearly in love with her, my view is uh, that was not a uh, physical love affair. It's an argument that goes on and on and on. No one will ever know. And it may not matter much. But um, once, once the Roosevelt's had uh, decided to stay together as partners, really, rather than 
husband and wife. Um, they were free to have friendships of their own, and Mrs. Roosevelt had a lot of them. I don't think they were physical, myself. Um, um, and Franklin Roosevelt had a secretary who was very close to him, Missy Lehan. I also don't think that was physical, but, but it was certainly very intense friendship. Um, and I don't like to make moral judgments. <laughs> but the American people do. So I, I think the question is a historical question, right? How did it affect their standing vis-a-vis -vis the American public? Is this well, nobody knew, about, discovered, right, no one knew about either one of right. them during their life. So during, voters right. didn't know anything about it. At all. So what we know now is different than what they knew that's then. Good. That's and right. Was, and Nobody you know, knew that. People were barely of aware of his, of his handicap. Right? Mrs. That's Roosevelt, in, it was a sort of emblem of her friendship. If she, if, she was, if she had decided you were going to be her friend, then she would tell you the story of the betrayal. <laughs> that was true of all of those people. Uh, and it was sort of a bond uh, that she had with them. It's a curious, curious thing. And somehow none of that ever really got out. Uh, to the press until after until after uh, Franklin Roosevelt had died, and nothing it, about Lucy Mercer, I believe, until after Eleanor died in any of the mainstream press, right? Well, there would no. There's uh, Raymond Clapper had something about her, I think, oh, without naming Daniels did, I think, earlier. And, but and, I mean, in and, terms yes, of Jonathan Daniels. in terms of, but I, when uh, Lady Bird Johnson, who was certainly in Washington in the 1930s and would have heard the story because she knew all the <laughs> congressmen's wives said uh, when word, when it got out then in the 60s when she was a public figure, she said, oh, that Lucy Mercer affair was just a little speck on the wedding cake. <laughs> she didn't. She thought Eleanor was wrong to be so upset about it. Uh, well, she, Lady Bird's story. She figured out another way to That's rationalization. Yeah. Thank so, you. Thank you. Are there other questions? Because I, of course, have 10 more. Uh, but I want to be a populist Democrat and open up to questions. Uh, my name is Elizabeth. Thank you for your talk, which I've enjoyed. Uh, I read Betty's book, and I don't know how to pronounce your last name, so forgive my familiarity. And um, you portray um, President Johnson through maybe Lady Bird's eyes as sometimes bipolar and non-functional. And previous to reading that book, I read Mr. Califano's book, where LBJ is this strong uh, person who passes all these bills. So the difference in uh, the picture of President Johnson through the Lady Bird and Lyndon book is so different uh, from what I ever read about him. And do you have any comment? I was shocked, actually. Actually, I was not the first one to to write about LBJ's extreme moodiness, but it's true that I, I, uh, I use Lady Bird's diary a lot. Um, Robert Dalek in the 1990s wrote those two volumes on Lyndon Johnson, and he interviewed Bill Moyers, who would not, did not speak with me. But Bill Moyers, for example, was extremely upset about the depression that LBJ would fall into, particularly in the spring of 1965, when all that legislation was, you know, about to be passed. And so it's, uh, uh, Moyers says that he went to Lady Bird because he was concerned that something was really wrong. And she said, well, I've already called in his doctors, and they just say it's the extreme stress of the work that he's doing. Also, Richard Goodwin, the husband of Doris Kearns Goodwin, wrote about it in his book, uh, I think it's called um, 19... Anyway, Richard he Goodwin... He thought he was paranoid. Yeah, he... he that and was he, the worry. He yeah. said that he went to... Uh, Goodwin went to psychiatrists. He was so worried <laughs> that um, LBJ was going to fall apart. And so other people have talked about it, but um, not maybe in the detail. Well, they didn't have Lady Bird's diary to see what she was saying. She would say, for example, in the spring of 65, oh, he's really in the dumps today, or, you know, this is really bad. And then she'd say, well, today he's good. I don't know what sprung him. 
So mm -hmm. That was her word. I don't know what sprung them. So she never used uh, bipolar. In fact, bipolar wasn't used then. It was manic depressive. But she never calls him that. He was never... Um, he was never diagnosed, as far as I know. But if you go back to their courtship letters, the letters that he wrote her, which were just opened a couple years ago in the, in the fall of 1934, you know, they were apart for like three months, 10 weeks, I think. He was in Washington and she was in Texas and he was trying to get her to marry him. And he is so moody. I mean, those letters, mm. you can go online and read them. Uh, He'll say, oh, I, I really feel down in the dumps today. I, I stayed in bed all afternoon. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then she'll say, now, you, you stop that right now. And he said in one letter, you know, I need somebody like you to nurse me and help me to climb. So she really served as his emotional stabilizer. And I've talked to Bob Carroll about that. He says, too, that she was his, I think he uses the word emotional stabilizer, although he hasn't written about that part of the White House those years yet. Well, fortunately, so it's it's not. I haven't been the first one. It's more detailed, perhaps. Fortunately, Lyndon Johnson's successor, Richard Nixon, was emotionally very stable. So, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, did you want to? Yeah. No, I just want to say you mentioned uh, you, that you can go and listen. The other wonderful thing you can do if you just want to entertain yourself. I, I do this an embarrassing amount of my time. Um, if you go to the Miller Institute website, mm -hmm. you can listen to hours and hours and hours of Lyndon Johnson running the American government. And it is an education in acting, <laughs> civics, uh, profanity. Manipulation. And, and just entertainment. He is marvelous. And some of those recordings of, are of him talking to his wife. Yep. And she didn't know that they were being recorded. Yeah. Well. And, when, and he, when he left the White House, he said... He gave the recordings, he, uh, one trusted secretary, and said they were not to be open to the public until 50 years after his death, which would be 2023. We'd still be waiting for them. Mm -hmm. But the head of the uh, Johnson Library thought, you know, I've got a good archive here. And so he went to Lady Bird and said, what do you think? Shall we open them now? And she said, yes. How could she have done that? I mean, the courage. She her. didn't know what was in there, but we have this wonderful archive sure now. So I said to Middleton, the head of the library, if she had said no, what would you have done? He said, I wouldn't have opened them. Sure. She was an amazing, authentic, open person. Mm -hmm. Betty, I want to go back to something that Jeff opened up, the question of how the Obamas will be remembered um, when you write that next chapter of, when I'm, of, of first spouses <laughs> um, and look back on the Obama administration. I'm just curious how you'll, how you'll put them in uh, historic context. Well, she, it seems to me, all first ladies since Lady Bird have learned from her. And uh, she, you know, they have the project. I'm sure we'll have Michelle's book within the year, mm. although she has not given many interviews. She's been, it's been, uh, in terms of managing the, the East Wing of the White House and the family, I think it's been extremely successful. I think they were helped by the fact that the daughters were young. You know, the Johnsons had trouble with when Lucy got a car, she said, here I am, 16, my first car, and I've got these Secret Service trailing me on every date. So, and L Linda wanted to travel in Europe, and uh, Lyndon, the president, said, uh, you know, we can't be spending American dollars abroad. So they had more <laughs> trouble with their, the family, managing the family, I think, than the, the Obamas. The Obamas, I agree with uh, Jeffrey. Well, you They've been she, amazingly successful. Sure. No. My, uh, my son... We were watching Mr. Trump, and I was talking to my son, and his, his son, he, he said to me, I don't know how to explain this to my son. My son <laughs> is about to graduate from high school, and he has 
you know, had seven and a half years of a dignified, articulate, calm president. Honest, not and a, and, a, and a wonderful family. And he, it's inconceivable to my grandson, <laughs> and I hope to all of us, <laughs> that, um, that this thug can be elected president of the United States. Sorry. I, I, I get two readings of, of, of Michelle Obama. On the one hand, you know, when you see her on Jimmy Fallon doing the first lady dance and stuff, she's really having a great time, yeah. really enjoying it. There's also sometimes there's a certain piece that seems, as with many of the first ladies, a, a little sad, a little frustrated, a little a little caged in. Well, you know, that uh, was... I think it's a very hard job. And she was yeah. she interviewed him when they first met. Yeah, um, right? She was right. interviewing yeah. him for a job at Sidley. And yeah. I think having <laughs> to submerge your identity can be very problematic. Well, you, you can't, in, in a funny way, you can't win if you're a first lady. If you're the major advisor to your husband or a major advisor, you can't tell anybody. Right. And if you're not a major advisor, you can't tell anybody. And you feel bad both ways. Jackie Kennedy, just one thing. Arthur Schlesinger, to get a head start on Ted Sorensen, they were writing dueling biographies, had a series of interviews with Jackie Kennedy, which he then... Um, embargoed for 20 years or 30 years or at least until Ted's book came out so Ted wouldn't have access to it. <laughs> and if you look at those, if you read or listen to those interviews, you suddenly see that Jackie, who never said anything about what was going on in the White House and made believe she had no idea, knew much, much, much more than we ever, ever imagined. And if it hadn't been for those interviews, which we, like the lady, like the Johnson tapes, shouldn't have heard. Yeah. Um, we'd never know that. Look at the trials and tribulations of Hillary Clinton as first lady. Was, right. you know, she yeah. was wrong when she was involved and she was wrong when she wasn't. I can't win. We have one final question. Yes. Uh, er, earlier you were talking about what would be the use of Bill Clinton in the White House. And after all, he won't just be your typical spouse. He will be a former president, which would be very unusual. I've... Uh, based on discussions that I've gone to from people who are very knowledgeable about the Middle East, from Israel, from the Palestinians, they've all said, they both agreed that the person who understands the Middle East the best and has the respect from both sides is Bill Clinton. Could you see her using her husband as an envoy to the Middle East? So, anybody sure. want to tackle that? No. Um, no. <laughs> No, I think it would be an enormous mistake. I mean, he can, you know, under the radar, have conversations and give advice. But I don't think he can have any official role. Um, I think it would compromise the White House, and it would compromise the Is it different the from the Attorney General, RFK, uh, Bobby Kennedy being Attorney General for his brother? Is it different from that, do you think? I hmm. think so. I think so. I mean, Robert Kennedy is, I mean, the, there's a confirmation of, I don't have So you, you're, you're thinking it would be like Hillary doing health care, just be kind of going into the no-go zone. I don't think it's because yeah. he's a man. It's no. because he's the former president of the United States. No. I mean, that's it's a special fair, thing. It's but, always very hard to figure this out. Look at the problems that our current mayor has had, trying to figure out the relationship between, I mean, what is Charlene's role going yep. to be? And they still haven't figured it yep, out. Yeah, but I've heard people who are experts in this field both agree that Bill Clinton has an understanding. Remember, they almost came to an agreement 
yeah. at the end of oh. his presidency. Well, and they felt that more than anybody else, Bill Clinton had the respect and understanding that very few people have. And I don't see why he could not be used well, in it, that capacity. What's interesting, and this is a good way, this is a good way of, 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 of pulling all this all together, is you're talking about a substantive question. You're absolutely right. At one point in the 1990s, when Bibi Netanyahu in his first prime ministership was uh, fighting with Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton looked at Bibi and said, you know, if I ran for a prime minister of Israel, I'd beat you. And so he definitely has a connection with both the Israelis and the Palestinian people. But you're talking about policy and substance. And the dance we've danced tonight so delicately is both the policy substantive side and also the public image side. And that's what makes the American presidency both so difficult to uh, live in and so much fun to talk about. So I want to thank you very much. Thank you all so much. Gil Troy, Betty Boyd Caroli, Jeffrey Ward, David Nassau. Thank you all for joining us. Stay for the book signing. And remember the May 7th Grandmother Roosevelt program. Thank you all.